0: For 21 days with another person can be trying, but I am here to tell you that my traveling companion and leader, Bob Provost, was absolutely gracious, marvelous, and a lot of fun. Please welcome Bob Provost. I told Russ we should have stools for this. Where are the stools? Well, they only had little stools, and I didn't want to sit down a little.
1: I just can't thank you enough for praying for us. And I agree with Russ, it's tremendously wonderful to be home. But we knew you were praying because we we went in the power of God everywhere we went. We weren't sick a minute the whole time. And with the stuff we ate, you had to be sick, a lot of it. Uh, You know, Russ has a reputation for not being able to eat everything. He ate everything. He ate some of the everything I didn't eat.
0: Yeah, I did. You
1: really did well. <laughs> yeah. We don't even know what it was, and it, so it's not as bad as if you knew what it was, you know. Just eat. Just eat. Just eat and smile. and but there's some secrets to that, you know. You never clean up your plate because they'll give you more of it. That's right. You have to be careful. But we never missed a travel connection, and we had many, many opportunities. We never missed an appointment. I don't even we were late for one because we had the wrong time but uh, and by the grace of God the Lord seemed to use us to encourage people along the way and we even had some good opportunities to share our faith and so we thank you for praying for us above all I think Asia is a continent of great contrast great great contrast in many areas the 21st century seems to be leaping out of the 18th century or out of the 19th century never having passed through the 20th century What I mean by that, you'll see often ox carts and peasants working uh, using water buffaloes to plow uh, right in an area surrounding runways on which Boeing 747s are taking off and landing. Or you'll see farmers working in their bare feet in rice paddies in areas where they're in the shadow of great skyscrapers all around them. Or you'll see entire cities that are being planned and built with such detail, they, they plan and build entire cities the way we plan and build one single housing development in certain parts of Asia. There are many areas where everyone wants to learn English. And at the same time, there are many areas where few white faces have ever been seen. Russ will tell you some of those experiences later on. And there are areas where the name of Christ has not been heard one time, and yet there are areas where the presence of vibrant Christianity is felt across all levels of society from the top right down. Our first stop was in the great city of Manila in the Philippine Islands, an area where the influence of communism continues to increase and where, in many provinces, Terrorism reigns day in and day out. The front page of the Manila newspapers every day are covered with descriptions of acts of war and incidents of of terrorism. And yet the church is marching on in a way that's unparalleled anywhere in the world, right there in the midst of this increasing communism.
0: The, uh, the Philippines is a remarkable place. It's it's kind of had a tropical village feel. And you can see that over here on the left, or my left, your left, because I'm facing your way. Um, you show up at the airport, and they got all these little things they call jeepneys. Nobody has cars, but they all have a bunch of jeepneys. And these are long little jeeps, and they're all decorated in all these funny different colors, and they honk their horn constantly. And if you want to go somewhere, you jump on and go and hope you're on the right one. You know what I mean? But the, the atmosphere is very friendly. They speak English as a very strong second language. They're awfully friendly to us because we help them, of course, just a little bit there in the war. And so Americans are very welcome and the church is in, the harvest is overwhelming. We <clears throat> I just want to give you one example that we met with a man by the name of Luke Garcia. He's a national there and he is very, very gifted. He's their pastor. We were in their worship center on Sunday morning. There were about 100 people packed into this little garage, an outdoor garage, kind of a carport look, and he's there. But the worship and the preaching and the teaching, you would have absolutely loved every little bit of it because it was so real. It was so good. They had a strong EE program, and Bob and I had a chance to go out with them that afternoon, and Bob had... A very interesting experience. Yeah, I went with a young Filipino girl, probably 21
1: or 22, and with a, a young man, maybe a couple years older than that. And and we walked through these poverty, uh, poverty-laden areas. Great poverty in the Philippine Islands. And a lot of people living in little shacks and hovels. And and one of the contexts we had that afternoon, uh, we we had difficulty finding because they didn't have a door to their house. And finally, we asked around. These ladies were washing their clothes in the basins out on uh, along the sidewalk and others were out on the sidewalk cooking, oh, and thank you, fantastic, perfect, that's short. So we're looking for the door to the house to go in to see this guy, you know, and uh, we, we finally find a place that's about, just about that high, and it's a hole in the wall, and it's kind of rectangular, but it's only about, about chest high on an American, and not much higher on a Filipino. And so we duck our heads and go in there and we go around a couple areas and we find this little area and i could tell it was a kitchen because there was a there 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 was an oil cloth cover on a table Uh, and there were some dishes and a dish rack sitting on that table but that was the only evidence i had it was a kitchen because there was no sink and there 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 was no refrigerator and not even a stove and there were some benches around the table but it was spotlessly clean. and there was a man in there man probably 30 years of age And he had three little daughters, and they came in, and they were perfectly clean. Little white shirts on, and they'd been washed in that little basin. They were clean. So we sat down and talked with him. After about an hour of discussion in Tagalog, which is one of the languages they speak there, and, of course, I could just kind of listen and watch the looks on their faces and really not know what was being said. But after about an hour, this man prayed and received Christ as a Savior. That was quite an exciting way to begin our second day in the Orient.
0: Mm. The Orient has, particularly the Philippines, has an enormous amount of opportunity for um, English-speaking college kids. Any of you fit that? Yeah, I think a lot of you are English-speaking college kids. <laughs> Marvelous. So I guess there'd be a lot of opportunity for people like you to go to the Philippines and have, have a ministry opportunity. The Greater Manila area is absolutely going bonkers over the gospel of Jesus Christ. People come to know the Lord like you've just seen, even uh, in an afternoon just from a DE contact or an EE contact. There's a group of churches that have joined together, the Association of Bible Churches of the Philippines, and they have a goal to start 1,000 churches by the year 2000. So it's kind of a 1,000 by 2,000. And, And we're in contact with them and trying to find out ways that possibly some of you might be able to be involved in that. Another exciting thing, and this would come right down the pipe at the Master's Men. We met at a place called AIM, Asian Institute for Management in the Philippines. And it's there as a large building to train people to be good business managers. But there are some Christians in this place that have been trained there and now hold jobs in the Philippines. And so three years ago, 25 of them got together and said, we'd like to see if Christ couldn't reach our business places uh, through us. Today, three years later, they have a church of a thousand people. There's not one paid minister, not one paid staff person. It's just a bunch of businessmen who asked the question, do you think God could reach our fellow businessmen through us? The answer was yes. From there and from the wonderful, powerful work of the Spirit of God happening in enormous dimensions in the Philippines, we went to another place which did not see the same power of the Spirit of God in, in, in conversion, so to speak, and that was in Taiwan. But before we go to Taiwan, Russ, I want to just mention
1: quickly the impact that Dr. MacArthur's ministry is having in the Philippine Islands. Uh, the, the, the church that Russ just described the, that takes place at the Asian Institute of Management was basically, in its formative time, Founded on John's teaching these men were passing John's tapes around these businessmen John doesn't even know about that to this minute <laughs> And and they had a, a huge library of John's tapes and guys kept coming up and saying three or four guys came up And we we're only there 15 minutes for the first part of their service and We had to go out we We're going to three or four church services the same morning so you can only stay at part of each one The guys were coming up and saying hey I was in grace community last week Another guy came up and said I was there too These guys are traveling the United States so Every time they come they try to come to church at grace community and so then later the same day we're we're over visiting uh, uh Word of Grace has a has an office in the Philippines. You probably didn't know that. Word of Grace has an office where they loan out tapes. And there are two girls working in this office called Grace to You. Uh and uh and they're loaning out an average of six hundred of John's tapes every week to Filipino believers. And then we went to this Bible college in the Philippine Islands called Phoebeus. And and they provided a teacher to walk us around this Bible college. It has about 400 students. And we're walking with him and we're telling him who we work with. And he said, John MacArthur? You're kidding. He said, I have 300 of his tapes. (laughs) (laughs) That's the kind of an impact our president has on the world. And everywhere we went, everywhere we went, people knew him. People that he has no idea that they know him. He's not even been over there yet. He's going next summer. Now, what about Taiwan? Taiwan is a little island where where when the, communist Chinese, when, the, when the communists took over China, the people who were in leadership in China at that time fled to this little island called Taiwan. Uh, and uh, it's remained democratic since '49, when mainland China became communistic. And, but without the influence of communism, to eradicate the, the idolatry and the ancestral worship, uh, it's a country that, that economically is booming, that politically is stable, that has freedom of religion, that has a very high standard of living, has highways covered with cars and trucks just like here, but spiritually it's a different story.
0: Yeah, and I think we have a picture of that. They're into ancestor worship, and that was new to me. I think we have a picture. We can try another one. We'll get it. They um, go one more time. We, we forgot to talk about these pictures. <laughs> See all you're missing already? Go one more time. There it is. The uh, the way it works now, when one of your family... Re- you don't mind if I turn my back to you so I can see these pictures too. They're kind of interesting. But when one of your family members die, you'll take him and bury him in one of these kind of places. Now, his spirit will go three different places, or I guess he has three spirits. One spirit stays right here where it is. So you have to make sure you bring your priest out, and the priest at great price will tell you just how to position the grave so that the bones will rest in good peace. Because if the spirit does not rest with his bones in good peace, then the spirit will come and torment your family and you'll get sick. See, stuff like that. Now, the second spirit goes up to judgment and where he considers the possibility of reincarnation. See, if he was a good spirit, then he gets to be reincarnated in some date in the future in a high state. If he was a bad spirit, he comes back in a low state. The third spirit comes back with you. You carry that back to your house in a little urn. Okay, so you bring Uncle Charlie's third spirit back to the home in an urn. And when you get him home, you put him on your God shelf which is a a very officially made thing has a little shelf hangs on the wall and there's a little Buddha that sits right there or whatever he is looks like a Buddha to me with two little red lights on both sides that's very key you can see that all every anywhere you go to any store to any home you can just look from the street and you'll see very visible the two little red lights in between which is the Buddha and you notice the folks coming to it every day with fruit fresh fruit and water and all because you have to feed your spirit because if you don't feed him he gets hungry now, they need currency, and Bob will tell you how they get their currency, their money. Well, I don't know how they get it. I think they work for it, but I know what they do with part of it. Part of it, they take
1: and they take their real money, and they buy play money, and they take, take it to a place like this temple in the middle. And they, over, over in the extreme right, I think, down there in the front, there's a... There, can you see part of that? Yeah, part of the thing down in the, in the right in the front is a is a furnace. It's an outdoor furnace, very um, ornately um, decorated, and that's a place where they... They, um, they take their, their, their money, their real money, and then they buy play money, and then they burn the play money in this furnace, and the purpose of that is to appease the gods by burning play money. Now, what do you think about that, being afraid of a god who's so dumb that he he's, can be um, appeased with play money, you know? Um, but that gives you an indication of the bondage. Of The spiritual bondage that they're in these are people that, are, that, that have a, a very strong economy and 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 they're Bustling and and every other way, but spiritually they're entrapped in that kind of lie. They they also carry Carry a lot of food in, into a temple like this and in the inner rooms There'll be a stack of oranges in front of one little idol and maybe some some grapes and other food in front of another They, they actually put money out to these gods every day of the year Actually feeling that would bring them some favor. In, in the rear of this big temple, in the middle picture, uh, behind it, there were a number of caves cut out in, in the hillside. And, and Russ and I went back and walked through those caves, and and, and, and you kind of felt like the, the demons were just going to jump out and grab you all through that place. It was just an incredible place
0: to be. The amazing thing is, though, that when these people, these dear but deeply deceived people, a lot of that just coming right out of the way they were raised, When they finally come to Christ, it is a glorious, glorious thing. And we were able to meet with several missionaries and and meet even some of their converts. It happens much slower there. You'll see a missionary um, spend maybe two to three to four years in Taiwan coming up to a conversational level in the language. And then you'll see him work his whole life for maybe five to twenty-five people that would come to know Christ through him. And it's just, but it's, it's it's sweet. It is wonderful. It's powerful. One of the things that students could be involved in um, is to go, and this really had an impact on my life, to realize, you know, that the missionary lives in a pretty decent house. It has a washing machine. It has... TV, radios, blankets on their beds. They eat good food. I had this picture of a missionary that was completely different from that. It was like some major hardship. And really what a missionary does is he goes and he makes residence in a community. He learns the language in the morning. He he goes out in the afternoon and meets and builds relationships that people can trust him. And he serves people. He gives the love of Christ at that point. They live basically a very normal life. A lot like the life you'd live here. The major difference is most of them know why they're there. They're there to make Christ an issue. A lot of us forget that. But from Taiwan, we went to Bob's most favorite city in the whole world, Hong Kong. But the, uh, the pictures are incredibly inadequate.
1: Uh, next time, we're going to take a photographer with us. By the way, I took the pictures. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. It's uh, it's just that we we always forget to take the pictures because we're interested in the people, you know, and we're leaving places and taking pictures over our shoulder, you know, trying to. Well, we've got to get a picture of this or that. And Hong Kong is really an incra- just a marvelously beautiful place. It's it's called the Pearl of the Orient has for centuries been called that third leading financial center of the world. Uh, and uh, the the most beautiful c- collection of modern architecture I've ever seen. Wouldn't you say that? And just mm-hmm. one little, no its like a, its like you get the impression that all the architects of the world went to Hong Kong to compete to see who could build the most beautiful building. It's just really what it seems like there. Uh, the most exciting, and it's so clean and and, and uh, so safe. I mean, you families are out walking at you know, at midnight, and just you could you could let your little kids go out. It's just an incredibly safe place, and. And the hospitality is wonderful. The transportation system is just unbelievable with, with subways that are so clean that you could you could eat off the floor in the subways and and uh, taxis, all you have to do is step out of a street and you six Well, I was uh, didn't want to refer to anything Russ did. Um, <laughs> we we weren't gonna do that anymore. You know, we got into this sort of cutting thing a little bit and we asked each other to forgive but we said we weren't gonna do that anymore. But I had to get a couple in I see. Okay. Well, it's a very well-run city and with many Christians in key leadership. But in ten years, in ten years, in 1997, the lease that the British government has had with the Chinese expires. And the communists are going to take over. And they're just salivating about it. They can't wait to get this gorgeous
0: city in their clutches. Think of that. You're in a city that is going to come under communist regime in ten years. You know that's going to happen. And you have a choice to make. Are you going to stay there and live in that situation and be used by God? Or are you going to try to establish your citizenship in another country? So that, and then, then come back and stay in Hong Kong until maybe a year before their takeover and then take off. A lot of the, the leading Christian pastors and leadership have been asked the same question because they happen to live there. And too many of them have given the answer you wouldn't want to hear. A lot of them have decided to establish their citizenship outside of Hong Kong. And and when you get there and you see their kids and and you understand what it means to try to raise your children under communist regime where God is not allowed, et cetera, et cetera. And they make a profession out of converting the mind of your child. Your heart understands. Do you understand what I mean? So it's not a thing we're trying to judge anybody. But the fact is the church right now in Hong Kong is struggling because its leadership is not as strong as it needs to be. But in the midst of it, we were able to find a camp that is probably one of the strongest camps I've ever seen. They, this camp, if we can see the next slide, this camp brings a thousand kids a week to this camp. It's not very big. You'll see it. A thousand kids a week, and they're public school kids. Public schools do this. They don't have a problem with Christianity. It's really weird. Only in America do we have a problem with Christianity as far as a public school item but so a 1,000 kids come a week, they come for three days, and then, and then another camp comes in for another three days. They have Christian counselors, Christian, the guy who preaches the word. These kids, see, they all live in Hong Kong, and there's no backyards. There's no parks. There's no nothing like grass and trees and swings and slides and all that fun stuff. So it's a very high-level motivation for them to come. And so they come, and they have this incredible time with their Christian counselors and all the outdoor activities. And at the end of the camp, they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, and four to 5,000 kids come to Christ every year to this camp. Most powerful thing, really, that we had seen in, um, in Hong Kong, except for the fact that Hong Kong is the base of ministry into China.
1: Next slide, please. Yeah, the next slide, if we could. We, uh, we spent considerable amount of time in Hong Kong and, and then in China with people who are associated with an organization called Friends of China, hmm. a new organization that is principally led by Britishers who really love the Lord and have an incredible burden for China. Uh, The man in the center picture there, his name is Peter Anderson. He's a Britisher. Uh, And we had an opportunity to dream a lot of dreams with them about how the Master's College could play a role uh, in penetrating China with the gospel. And one of the people then that traveled with us into China was one of their key people, uh, a missionary lady, kind of, but she's not really a missionary. You know, you can't, missionaries can't go into China, so I shouldn't say that. Take that off the tape. Um, her, her name is Leslie, and she's 40 years old, and she's kind of like a contemporary Corey Ten Boone. Uh, and she, um, she's going to be at the master's college. She agreed to come for several weeks here to be with us next winter, and you're in for quite a treat. Well, Leslie um, led our, uh, as a functioned as interpreter for us, and... Uh, Led us into some places in China that there's that no American would ever have found without that kind of kind of leadership.
0: Without question, the most shocking cultural experience of my life occurred when we landed in China for the first time. We had just come from the hustle bustle, and you saw it of Hong Kong makes most cities in America look backwards because they're so advanced and so new and so powerful and so wealthy. And you jump on this plane and you fly to China, and we land in, in a city kind of outside of their capital, Beijing. And the only thing that reminded me of the fact that I come from the 1980s was the jet I was sitting in. I look out the window, and there's only... This is a major airport for them. There's only one other jet in the whole place. they got two now, okay, in this major airport. And it's, a, it's, a, it's also made and manufactured in America. It's a Boeing 737. And what they have pulling it is a 1920s kind of a Waltons-type old-style truck Pulling this brand new jet. I'm like, come on, wait a minute. Where am I? And then you walk down the aisle and you, and you come down the off ramp off your plane. And you're greeted by the red guard. And they're standing in there in their Mao jackets. You know, there's no tailoring to it. They're just kind of, hmm, and they got the little red hats on. And they just kind of look at you. Like I'd just as soon kill you. as look at you. I mean, there's just a lifeless blank stare. And I'm kind of giving it the old... And there's just nothing in response. They're just like this. And I'm kind of feeling intimidated. And I look at the bit. So we walk across this old, old cement, you know, runway type thing. And we come to this huge building. But the building, as well as the rest of the land, is it's It's been bled of all of its life. It's desolate. It's bleak. It's empty. There's no electricity in there. There weren't any lights on. There's no food you can buy. There's no concession stands. There's no gifts. There's no automated uh, walkway ramp. There are no escalators. There's no nothing that reminds you of 1980. It's all years and years and years in the past, and I really felt like I had stepped out, not of a plane, but of a time machine. This is the most remarkable thing. And that people not seeing Western faces, Bob mentioned that, and I'm supposed to tell you about that. We were going to leave this very city, only we were going to leave by train. And so we go into this train yard, and it's just like you see in an old Western movie. But it doesn't look Western, but it's, it's all dirt. There. It's just dirt, dirt, dirt. And then this old rickety structure and the trains on the other side of the structure and between us and the structures, this dirt train yard. And there's thousands of Chinese people standing in there. None of them are going anywhere. This just happened to be where they like to stand. You know, there's a billion people living in China. You got to stand somewhere. <laughs> so they're standing in a train yard and here come Bob and I and, and Leslie, see, and we have in our hands, in our two suitcases, each and our clothing, we have more personal wealth Then all thousand of those people added up times two. And they begin to and I'm beginning to sense this. I'm going, These people are looking at us, they've never seen us before. It wasn't real hard to pick up. And I'm not lying to you, because they look at us, they just They just gawk, you know. The mouth falls open and they just stop what they're doing and they just watch. And they want to see a little closer. So they begin to get a little closer and they don't realize what they're doing, but what they have effectively done is walled us off from the train station. We can't even go anywhere anymore because there's them here and there's us here and the train station's there. Now see, this girl Leslie, she's a little more experienced and she just kind of kept on going but we don't know where she is anymore. She's our guide, the only person we know who knows how to speak the language. We don't know how to speak and she's disappeared in the building and here Bob and I, so we just kind of set our bags down and wait to get rescued by Leslie. (laughs) I mean, we didn't know where we were. And I said to myself over and over, I said, Russell, you are 12,000 miles away from home and have no idea how to get back. (laughs) Culture culture shock.
1: In, In the midst of all of that kind of an environment, the Lord is doing a wonderful thing. There's a beautiful new building there coming out of the garage, eight stories tall. Just a gorgeous building. And God has seen fit to provide the raising up of this building so that about 100 American Christians, whom he has called there, men, women, and children, are there as foreign experts to serve China in areas of technology and management and and, uh, just an amazing thing. And we had opportunity to worship with them that Sunday morning, about 100 of them together. And at the end of the service, they introduced us as to where we were from. And the lady was sitting next to me. She looked at me and she said, Grace Community Church. Are you kidding? I'm a member at Grace Community Church. <laughs> Can you believe that? The impact again. They had left about seven or eight years ago, but they'd never changed their membership, you know, and still tried to get the mailings and all of that kind of thing. And then um, we had opportunity to to meet with their leadership and talk about things that we were doing here that possibly could be helpful to them and and um, if Russ Hodge is here this morning or Jeff Zahn, others haven't had a chance to hear this from me privately, but there appear, appears to be an opportunity for us to be involved in a strategy that would result in what they're doing there in China at this center to expand to include sports consulting because the whole nation just wants to, <laughs> the nation wants to win gold, medals, and they need help in doing that. And we have a strategic opportunity to seize and be a part of that and for them to expand that that program to include sports consulting. And then that night, we went to the railroads after that, and Russ described what it was like trying to get out of that city. We did eventually get on that train, a dirty old train. You couldn't (laughs) see through the windows. There's one thing I want to say about all of Asia. Just categorically, all across Asia, the people, even in China, the people that have nothing are incredibly clean, incredibly in their personal hygiene. Everyone is incredibly clean. I didn't see a dirty person the whole time anywhere, regardless of the poverty. But it's a different thing when it comes to public buildings in China, or the streets, or the trains. I mean, they haven't washed any of that since the communists came. They've been there a long time. (laughs)
0: It's filthy, as a matter of fact. Everywhere you look. We went up to um, the capital, Beijing, on this train, and you've heard probably that after the communists came... Uh, they killed all the Christians kicked out all the missionaries killed all their doctors and just quit teaching everybody that And so China isn't a major problem because of that. They don't have any leadership They don't have enough doctors for all these people, etc., etc. And that's why they're involved in this big modernization push to try to get their economy moving again But you've heard that with all of that and all the traditional missionary work being removed from China Everybody wondered, okay, now what's going to happen to poor China? I mean will Christianity flourish? Will it grow? What's going to happen? And you probably also heard that Christianity has skyrocketed since they sent the missionaries out because the persecution of the church causes the persecution of the church to grow and the church just grows and grows and grows. And there is an estimated 50 million Christians in China. And most of them meet in these little things called house churches because you can't build the church building. Well, by virtue of our guide and some people that she happened to know, we were able to meet with a member of one of these house churches and we left our hotel under cover of darkness about 9:30 in the evening kind of a cold drizzly rainy evening and we take a taxi about halfway there because we don't want to move straight from our hotel to the location we'd like to visit so we get out of the um, taxi and we take a public bus and then we take another public bus and then we take another public bus and we're kind of crisscrossing all around so that nobody knows where we are and i'm not even sure we knew where we were after we crisscrossed so many times and we finally get out of this bus on the last stop and we go down this street that's um, as wide as maybe a two-lane street for us. And it looks like, oh, I think it was, built in like the 8th century. And these big block stones and makes this wall and behind it there are these big, huge buildings and all this stuff. And there aren't any cars driving by because you can't have a car in China because you can't afford it. Everybody drives little bikes or they walk. And so every now and then and again, we're walking down this dark street. And, of course, now you got to picture this. There aren't a lot of streetlights because, again, that's kind of a modernized type item. So it's a very dark, dark street and and no dogs are barking because all the dogs get eaten in China and no cars are driving by it's very quiet it's just kind of that's true by the way and it's just kind of the feet of the the noise of our own feet we move down this street until finally which caught me by surprise a member of the Red Guard just steps out on the street just kind of watches us walk by and he just follows us for a little ways and then we take a, a, a wrong turn go too far by the time we come back we don't know where he is and that's good And then finally, we take a right turn off onto a little more narrow street. And then we took a left turn into a little narrow alley. And I I mean by narrow, I mean two people couldn't walk together down this thing. We're just a little itty-bitty narrow thing. And again, these words are coming to my mind. Russell, you're 12,000 miles away from home. And And finally, we come to this door that our guide thinks is the right door and almost knocks on the door but doesn't want to knock on the wrong door. Because then you've got two Westerners and a real remote part, and what are they doing here? That causes suspicion. And she looks at the door, and it's not the right door. I don't know how she knew that. So she moves away and takes us through this little itty-bitty door into a small courtyard, and there's a door there with a little window, and there's a little bit of light coming out of the window. And she says, this is it. She's whispering. She knocks on the door real gentle and light, so the only people who would hear it would be the people inside. Creek, you know, the door opens up. And there's this girl standing there, and finally the person we're trying to meet comes, and that person sees our guide, and it's just like birthday time. I mean, everybody's really excited and happy because they haven't seen each other for months and months, maybe a year. And we go inside, and we just step now from the 8th century to maybe uh, the 1800s because her floor is all stone. Her walls are all stone. And this person is a leading, prominent professor in one of the educational institutes, like a big university in China. This is how the upper upper there live. Okay, stone floors, stone walls, no heater, just a wood stove, barely a sink, no oven by all means takes us around to the bedroom and it's very very tight little space same type of thing bed you know old typewriter and here she is a professor first thing she does sits down takes out um about a 1930 little tape recorder type thing puts a tape on to and and gets music going to cover our conversation so that nobody could tap in on what we're talking about and we enjoy this marvelous time with her and, and, and our guide sharing back and forth. And they handed us a copy in English of her testimony. And we had a chance to read that and rejoice in that and just encourage and pray with her. But it's amazing that, that here a, a Christian person such as that living there, one among millions that God has called to himself um, in praise. We left that city and flew across China to another university. And met there about 30 or 40 Westerners, that's Americans and other people that type, like, I kept trying to call everybody Americans. It showed how biased I was in my presentation. They were from New Zealand and all kinds of places. But they're all there for one reason, to, to share Christ in China. But they say they're there, and they are in in another part, to learn the language. And they're all studying Mandarin. And many of them have only been there two years. But one guy we talked to, just a nice guy, you, you know, just like us, right from America. He's gone to China. He's studying there. He's learning the language. He can communicate in Mandarin very well. This guy has seen three generations of Chinese students come to know Christ. First that guy, the the Chinese guy, then that Chinese guy led another Chinese guy, then that Chinese guy led a third. So that's three generations of people coming to Christ. And and just to help you see the significance of that, remember that only one-tenth of one percent, one-tenth of one percent of Chinese youth get to go to school at that level. So when you're converting people there, you're converting the nation's leadership. And, and later we were able to meet, and, and Bob will tell you about that, with officials from that university to see if there wouldn't be a way that some of you could go and do the same thing.
1: One out of, one-tenth of one percent is one out of every 1,000 Chinese young people gets to go to college. And so when you have opportunity to lead one of them to Christ, you're leading a future leader of China to Christ as we met with the university officials and they they received us royally and the reason they received us so royally is because we were associated with the organization that have brought these 30 or 35 western christian students and and their their presence on that campus uh, is has had an incredible impact on the whole campus i mean they the university officials are so impressed with this community of believers You know, they've given them the two top floors in in their brand new dormitory with private bathrooms and they give they give them a room to worship in on Sundays. And every time they're making up a new brochure for the university, they come over and fill it with pictures of these these Christian kids. They're just so impressed. And the reason they're so impressed uh, is because there's another building nearby where all the other Western students are big building that Russ and I stayed in. And it wasn't nearly as nice. Uh, But the other. Western kids are known for their drinking and for their immorality uh, and for be, being lazy students. They're, they're just known for the wrong things. And so you hold up this Christian community next to, to the other Westerners and it's like black and white. It's like the Lord has the Christian community on display in a way that just has, has, has kind of paralyzed the hearts of the leaders of the university. And so they're saying, boy, you know, you're with these guys we can have lots more of those kinds you know we want to work with you and so mm. we'll be talking with dr stead and and looking at at ways we could combine curricula uh, and ways that maybe we could even have a year there at that university to be a part of our program and just uh, some exciting things that could come out of that and then we went uh, we went to korea economically booming mm. the church is booming and the christian presence is so so incredible at the upper level of society, at all levels of society, but at the upper level of society in, in such an unusual way. And yet 30 minutes away by car from the capital city, from Seoul, 10 million people, 30 minutes away from all of this, this hotbed of Christianity, is the most oppressive communist regime in the world in North Korea. 30, sec- 30 seconds by missile, by the way, 30 seconds by
0: missile and a million troops 30 seconds away. We had a chance to go visit that. Um, Panamum Jam is the name, and you sign up with the, uh, the the military service that's there, and they'll take you up by bus, and they'll take you up into the actual line of demarcation, but the, the actual border between North and South Korea. The border is nothing more than a microphone cord, because that's where, the, like if this is the building that you'd meet in, the border runs right between it and the North... Um, Korean people sit at these tables and the South Korean people sit at these tables. And the only thing that separates it is one table. And across that table is the microphone line. And that's where they do their negotiations. Um, And while we were standing there, you know, the the communist guards come and look in the window at you. And they showed us all about where... Um, our troops were able to save a Russian person who had come for a tour from North Korea to see this Panama Jam area and he got close enough by virtue of where the tour led to come right to that border and at the right moment this Russian wanting freedom from communism bolted across the line onto our side and our guys immediately closed lines got him out of there but thirty communist troops came across the border and they came down to a sunken garden area and that's where they lost five of their men because our troops can mobilize 90 highly equipped Marines, um, excuse me, 60 of them in 90 seconds. Boom. They're right there, and they outflanked them, shut them down. And the communists are calling for help, peace. They're waving flags. We want out. Can we just collect our dead and go back across the line, you know? And that's what we let them do. We let them pick up their dead and go back across the line, but we kept the Russian. And so he's a free man today. And, and what hit me the hardest at this point was the oppressive... Um, demonic force that communism really is. Because we were we're we're sitting there all these countries are in Asia. I mean, they're all the same basically the same kind of folk I mean, it's all the same area and why is it that Hong Kong is doing so incredibly well at least that people have freedom to to Express their beliefs and a thousand kids can come to a camp and four thousand of those a year can come to know Christ and people can pick which job they want to work in and which church they want to worship in, and all that stuff Same people, but go to China go to North Korea nothing desolate empty oppressed hardship so I guess for me, it was, it was an amazing reality of communism. But in South Korea, the church is, is, again, it's like the Philippines. It's going amazing. We met with the pastor, Pastor Cho of the Full Gospel Church in South Korea. He has a church of 650,000 people. 650,000 people are in his church. And we went there at 10 o'clock at night on Friday night and that's the night they have their all night prayer meetings pretty popular here in the states you've heard a lot of those here in the states haven't all night prayer meetings and the the sanctuary holds 25,000 people And we were there a half hour early, a half hour before the meeting was supposed to start, and there were 15,000 Koreans in that building already, and there was a buzz in the room, and nobody was talking to anybody else except everybody was talking to God. They were all praying. They were there a half hour early. The place would fill to 25,000 people in the next half hour, and they would stay there and pray all night until like 4 or 5 in the morning. God is doing a mighty work in South Korea, and part of it wraps around sports. The people of South Korea and the churches of South Korea are catching a vision for sports, and Bob's going to tell you about that.
1: Uh, the leadership of Korea Sports Evangelism, with which Grace Community Church and the International Sports Coalition that we're a part of, were key in, in uh, encouraging them to begin such a work, and uh, is moving ahead at great speed and with great results. And As we met with them at this real fancy Korean uh, restaurant sitting on our pillows, and Russ has trouble with his knees. He really has a problem eating in those, you know, how you have to sit down and your legs have to go under this little table. And I don't know about his age. It hurts. Yeah, it's really rough for him. (laughs) But. We had opportunity to tell them about uh, status on the possibility of our becoming a worldwide prayer coordination center for the World Congress on Sports, and we told them that it it was in your hands, that we had shared that Mm -hmm. with you, and that it was up to you folks if God would lead you to accept that responsibility. Uh, Then we uh, were taken to a 2,400-student elementary school to observe the practice sessions of a uh, top-flight youth soccer team and uh, had opportunity to meet their coach.
0: I wish I could tell you more about their coach, but he's a a young Korean man, played five years of semi-professional and three years of professional um, soccer there, and he wants to come to the master's college so that he could possibly play, but that probably won't work out because of his professional status. But his main goal in coming would be to gain the biblical training and the experience in sports ministry because he wants to be a missionary by virtue of his athletic prowess and abilities as a coach in Bangladesh. Unbelievable opportunity, and we're meeting more and more people like that. Our college is going to become populated with people from all around the world who desperately want to come, get training, biblical being built up and built up so they can go to places that we could never go. And that'll his name is Mr. P. And if you'd pray for him and for his wife and for the arrangements for them to possibly come. Incidentally, uh, his wife is a semi-pro volleyball player,
1: and uh, she would come as well. So maybe we'll... uh have some good new athletes coming uh, then we went to japan and it's interesting you, you get into japan and you wonder well how, how are they doing didn't they lose the war
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, and then you look around and you realize what has happened the money that we've put into the space program and, and, and into military defense they have put into rather the development of technology for consumer products and into things like city planning and transportation and construction and and in many ways japan is the nation that is leading the world into the 21st century technologically but the excesses are rampant as well corporations demand the souls of the people of the men women don't work much in corporations but the men go to work early in the morning and come home 10 or 11 every night work six days a week and that's considered normative Uh, Pressure on education there is unbelievable because in order to make it big in a corporation, and that's what every, every parent wants their child to do, to make it big in a corporation, they have to go to the right schools, and so they have tremendous pressure from elementary school on. If they if they miss if they do poorly on the exam in the sixth grade, they can't get into the best junior high, and if they can't get into the best junior high, then they can't get into the best senior high, and they can't do that. They can't get into the best university, and they can't get into the best corporation. So you have people at junior high age committing suicide because they've shamed their family already because they didn't do well on the exam to get into the best junior high or into the best senior high. And um, two hours. Um, uh, two hours on a bus and three hours on a train. And on the first evening, we were in a little town at the base of Mount Fuji called Fujinomiya And there we met a dear woman, a missionary woman who's been there serving in Japan for 34 years. And you hear about the small numbers of people that she's ministering to. And, and Russ and I independently were beginning to wonder a life totally spent and, and seemingly for so few converts. And we're beginning to wonder about that. And then we met a young man. We met
0: a guy by the name of Mr. Edizuki. He's 30 years old, and I want any one of you girls interested to marry him. He is incredible. He knows, he knows four languages. He knows um, English perfectly, Japanese, uh, Thai, and Cambodian. And we, were, and we were in this, this dinner, okay? And there was a bunch of people there that didn't know how to speak English well enough. But Mr. Uzuki, he came, this 30-year-old, strong, strapping, godly, good-looking young man watching the room and puts all of us at ease instantly. And he begins to interpret. He begins to be sensitive to things that are going on and put the whole thing at ease. But what God is using him to do is unbelievable. He is a master at being the master's men. When Vietnam, when we pulled out of Vietnam, not only did Vietnam fall, but Cambodia fell. Their population went in a very short time from 9 to 6 million people because wonderfully the communists killed the top 3 million people in the country. As a result, refugee camps have been started because everybody who has any brains and ability wants out of Cambodia. And so there are 6 to 7 refugee camps full of Cambodians looking for freedom. Each one has from 40 to 60,000 people in it. Six of those. One of them has 170,000 in it. Mr. Etezuki has a ministry to the Cambodian refugees. They come there. They've lost their homeland. They've lost family members. They're disillusioned on life. They don't know where they're going to go. They don't know which country will admit them. They desperately need some trade and some skill that will allow them to be admitted in other countries. And guess who's there to teach it to them? Mr. Etezuki. The guy is unbelievable, and and we had to press him. The only reason he's not in Cambodia in one of these camps right now is because his father is dying of cancer. His brother just died of cancer, and his brother's wife and two children need to be um, cared for. And so high is his integrity and commitment to biblical principles that he leaves this marvelously fruitful ministry in Cambodia to come home and take care of his family. That's the kind of guy he is. And I pressed him. I said, do you see much fruit? And we knew there was enormous fruit. And, and he wouldn't hardly even want to talk about it. But finally, we, we, we asked him the right way. And he said, well, I did have a chance to visit 11 of the people that, that the Lord had allowed me to bring to Christ. And he'd gone on this little trip and I'd visit 11 of them. Just one of the guys he would tell us more about. And the one he told us more about has already seen 200 people come to Christ. Mr. Adezuki, the master, master man. Yeah, amazing. From there... Uh, uh, I'm at the end of my notes. Good. That means we're almost done. Japan is, is marvelously appropriate for summer term missionary work. We met with a guy named Art who runs the summer ministries program. They're 10 week type programs and it's where you could go get a little briefing in the Japanese language. Learn enough to maybe recognize some key signs and then you'd go and you'd live with a missionary for eight weeks. And you just do what they do. See what they see. Be a part of what they do. And again, I was so amazed that it's so normal. It's, it's just true Christianity in another culture and all you gotta do is learn the language and a few parts of their culture and be ready to give up all of the American bravado and go, you know, win souls for Christ and you could be a missionary. But, but Bob and I in talking and have come to a commitment in our hearts. And we don't know how this is gonna flush out. We don't know just which avenue we'll use or how the Lord will guide and direct our steps. But the basic commitment is to be able to give each and every one of you, each and every student who enters the Master's College, an opportunity for a summer cross-cultural ministry experience before you graduate. And we don't know how that's going to work. And that will not become a requirement. You have to do that. No, that's not the idea. But we want to do, and we're strategizing and praying and meeting with various people to figure out how God would lead us, because we believe that it will do two things. If we could provide that for you. Number one, it will provide um, a, a worldview on our campus. We desire to have a worldview. And I didn't even understand those words until i have just gotten back from that trip. You, you see things in light not of your own past and not of your own way that you were brought up in your little country. But you begin to see things from a world perspective. And, and you have things by which to compare your own environment. So that you have a heart for the world. And we want that. We want you to have that. We want to continue to have that because we believe that's what God has. God has a worldview. He loves all the people of the world. So that whether you stay here in your vocation and as church members and as elders and as deacons and deaconesses and all the kinds of things that we would desire for you to be, we want you to have an understanding of what it means to be a missionary so that you can support them financially, so that you can pray for them, so that we can raise up sending churches all across the country. But the other thing that it would do is that you would have a chance to go and see, you know what, my heart really is burdened for this country. And I really do want to, I I do want to go to that country. I don't want to be maybe a traditional missionary. Maybe I want to go as an accountant, but I want to go and I want to see God use me. So we're praying and trusting and believing and working that God would show us a way to get every single one of you who wants to go to a summer exposure trip, not just in Asia, but around the world. And our vision is that some point in time in the future, we would have several hundred of you each summer, whether it's through your churches or through Grace or through the school. We don't know how that's going to work. That's not the point. We want to see several hundred of you all over the world, different continents, different countries, raising up the Church of God wherever you go. Thank you for letting us share with you. It's it, it's been I know how it is sometimes with these reports that goes on, but you've been very attentive, and we want to thank you for that. And we're going to ask Bob to close in prayer, and then Steve's going to come and just minister to us in music. And as he does, would you continue to um, to open your heart to God, to be effectively used for Him? And you know a lot of that starts right here. If you're not effectively sharing your faith here, if you don't have a, a heart and a burden for the people who are here, going to another country isn't going to stimulate that. So a couple of things. Would you pray for Bob and I as we try, I mean, specifically now, as we, and not just in chapel, but as you leave, would you carry this with you as a prayer request for Bob and I and the others in the school here, faculty members and other leaders, as we try to work out a strategy for this school getting its kids, uh, students, across in cross-cultural stuff, number one. Number two, would you pray for um, your own heart, your own availability to God whether it be here or there and then thirdly would you make a commitment to be more effective or be reminded in your commitment to share Christ right here we are today let's pray